0: and be dependent upon no one. Well, we're kind of picking up in the middle of a context. Remember, he started in chapter 4 to talk about this this walk that they would have, which always means in the Bible, is a, your walk is your life, the way that you live, the way that you flesh out your life. And so he started in chapter 2 a little bit, he mentioned it, and he says, walk in a way that is worthy of God. Then when we got to chapter 4, He said, finally then, brethren, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He says, that walk worthy of God, you're doing well in it, you need to keep it up. Well, that goes all the way to the end of the passage that we're looking at now because in verse 12, he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It's all focused on this walk, and what God's encouraging us to do is to have a worthwhile walk, and He has that kind of in some different categories that He addresses. Last time He was talking about personal holiness. God is a holy God, and so He expects us as His children to walk in holiness, and that's what the first eight verses of First Thessalonians chapter four is focused on—is walking in holiness. Well, then in chapter nine He starts to focus on a couple other things. He's going to focus on love. Uh, I, th- I think he's kind of focusing on peace. So that's what we're going to follow through on these last things as we continue this worthy walk, or, or as we called it, when we looked at the first eight verses, we called it right living. We're going to see that these certain things need to be a part of our life. And the first one that he focuses on is love. These people were doing very well in their understanding of and in their experience of love. In chapter 1, verse 3, he told them, he says that they were remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he started off the letter saying, you know, we can see love very active in your life. We can see that it gets fleshed out in a very practical way as you reach out to other people. In chapter 3, remember the Apostle Paul had been worried about them because they were going through a lot of tribulation, a lot of a lot of struggles with people persecuting them. And so he's worried that maybe they're falling away. Maybe they're shrinking in their faith. Maybe not exercising their love as much. Not able to get there himself, he sent Timothy to go check on him. And then in verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Timothy comes back and says, They're doing great. And now, what does he want him to do? Just Increase. Can you ever get a point to say, where you say in your life, you know what? I'm a pretty loving person. That's probably just, that's probably good enough. No, we don't. We don't get to that point. No matter where we're at in our ability to draw other people into our heart, we always have room for improvement and we need to keep growing in that. And that's what he says in chapter 3, verses 12-13. through He says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of His saints." It's interesting that it's coupled here with holiness because verses 1-8 through talked about holiness and then he starts to focus on love in verse 9. The Bible says be holy. Why? Because I am holy, God says. It also talks about the fact that God is love. And so I remember in Bible college and doctrines classes and stuff, sometimes we'd have these discussions. Is God's greatest attribute His holiness or is it His love? Well, to have that discussion, you kind of imply that there's a contradiction between the two of those things and you know what there is never a contradiction God's holiness is never compromised by his love and his love is never sacrificed by his holiness he perfectly has both of them all of the time holiness and love are coupled together in many places the apostle John does the same thing says whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected you see that The connection between personal holiness, being separated to God by obeying His commandments and walking with Him in righteousness. And when you do that, what happens? The love of God is perfected in you, it's described as. And so these things blend together perfectly. The goal is never to have one without the other, but both of them functioning perfectly all the time. Now, as we look at love within this passage here, we're going to see a couple of, a couple of things that we learn about love is first of all that it is an anointed love. Now the reason that I that I say that is in First Thessalonians chapter four and verse nine, it says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. God has taught you to love one another. You know what God is love and when we embrace God, we embrace those attributes of God and his love just begins to flow through us. And so the thought of having somebody that thinks that God is important but love is unimportant is a complete contradiction. We mirror the love of God in our life. Now, the reason I called it an anointed love is because John in his first epistle, he focuses a lot on this. And he talks about the anointing that they receive from God that teaches you to love one another. In 1 John chapter 2, and verse 20, it says, "...but you have been anointed by the Holy One." And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. He says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know it. I'm writing to you because you do. And so he would go on in verse 27 and say, But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Sounds a lot like Paul, right? But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Well, in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so you see, both of these two things, righteousness and love, are things that are benchmarks for the Christian. If if these aren't things that are happening in your life, he says this is how we know. It becomes very clear who is a child of God and who isn't. Who is a child of the devil? Because if you're a child of God, you're going to mirror God's nature. If you're a child of the devil, you're going to more mirror the devil's nature. And so he says it becomes very clear to see which leads us to verses 16 and 17 he says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does God's love abide in him? That anointing teaches you to love because God loves. Ultimately how does it work? God loves us and sends His Son to die for us, and the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Because God is love and He is now part of us, then we turn and love other people. Just like I mentioned earlier, the progression in our songs this morning, we started out singing about God's love for us and we ended with singing about our love for other people. That's why when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He he never just gives them one. When He's asked for the greatest commandment, He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Soul, mind, and strength. And then not being asked what's the next one is, he just interjects it. He says, and the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot separate those two things. It's impossible for you to experience the love of God in your life and not share the love of God from your life with other people. It's absolutely impossible. And that's why he ends with John three sixteen and 17 there, which gives a practical circumstance where these, you have a brother or sister coming to you that's destitute in desperate need. And you don't do anything. He says, where's the love of God in that? How can the love of God abide there? It can't be there. So the love that we experience is an anointed love. It did not originate with us. It is what we find in God through Him working in our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have that anointing love. But not only is it anointing love, it's also a growing love. In verse 10, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Back in chapter 3, we find that that's what the Apostle Paul prays for as well. It says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. In the midst of him telling all these people, look, you're doing really good, he's going to say, keep it up. Keep doing it. Keep that focus. Keep loving people. Keep living that righteous life before God. And so our love is to be a growing, a growing love. Well, now, then he moves on from love a little bit, or, or includes within it this idea of, I'm going to call it peace. Okay, now, uh, the word peace is not in the passage, and so I hesitate to do this a little bit. But what uh, the word peace is, is I find peace to be kind of a summary of the next four things that he says. Right? I was going to just deal with them individually, and to some extent we are going to do that. But if you look at uh, how the rest of the Passage unfolds here, the next couple of verses, verses 11 and 12. And you take all four of those things, they're kind of, they're very connected. They have some similarities between these things. And when I look, step back and I kind of look at all those things together, I say, well, what is it that they're portraying? What is the, what is the big idea that kind of summarizes all of them together? And I think it's peace. Now, he does mention peace within the greater context as a whole. Back in chapter 1, it was part of his greeting. As he greets, he wishes upon them grace and peace. Towards the end of chapter 5, he's going to mention it a couple times. Be at peace among yourselves. And then as he kind of finishes the letter, he says, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. So he does definitely have this, this idea of peace that he wants to see fleshed out in their life. But I would not go so far as to say that 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 he actually injects the word in the passage that we're looking at, but the way I want to use it is I'm trying to summarize verses 11 and 12. And what does he say in verses 11 and 12? That we're to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be dependent on no one. And I just thought those four things kind of all working together. What do they? What do they communicate? And you might pick a different word, but peace is kind of what I. Thought that they pointed to. How do we experience this kind of peace, this kind of tranquility in our lives? And the first thing that we find is no drama. No drama. Notice what he says in verse 11 Aspire to live quietly. You know, sometimes as people, things get a little more exciting if we stir the pot a little bit. If we kind of create some drama. The Apostle's saying, No drama. Don't do it. Aspire to live quietly. Living quietly is a good thing. Every time I get to the cities, I love it that I live pretty quietly up here in Littleport. The traffic is not quiet. The lines and the stores are not quiet. There's, there's not very little quiet about the cities that I can find. But up here in our rural community, much more quiet. You know, when they were tearing up our roads the other, a couple of years ago, we were about ready to move out of town <laughs> because we're so used to the quiet. But you know what we like? We like the quiet. Quiet is a good thing. We are supposed to want a quiet life. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4 through four says, First of all then, urge, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Why are we supposed to be praying for our leaders and everything? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs chapter 17, and verse 1, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Peter, speaking to ladies about what should they should aspire to, what they should strive for, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braving of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. We have so much outspokenness today. And we have so many people that, are, that think that the world needs to know every thought that they have. And you know what? When I get around somebody that's quiet, you know what I think? I think? I think they know something that's worth listening to. Just the experience of quiet seems to communicate depth. You know, it's kind of like that old saying, better to close your mouth All right, what is it? Close. Better to be quiet. Let people think you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. That's not exactly where I want to go with that. (laughs) The Bible does talk about uh, even a fool is counted wise when he keeps his silence. We've all had people that we've been around that they're pretty quiet people, but when they speak, it's a boy, your ears perk up. You tune in. Why? Because when they speak, it's usually pretty valuable. It's usually pretty helpful. That's the kind of life we want to have. We want to be people that that are people of substance. You don't find people of substance blathering it all over the place all the time. You know, we used to have a term when, when I was a kid that I remember my mom would use it with my sister a lot. Talk, talk to her about being ladylike. And in our society, we've done so much of a push to push ladies to into different positions and things like that that we've we've lost that I think sometimes. And that quiet life is something to aspire to. That that is a good life on the news the other day, they were talking about us and the international community and, and what is the future of America in, in international dealings. And, and one of the things that they pointed out is they said, surveys show that in China, the number one thing that youth aspire to is to be an astronaut. In America, you know what the number one thing that young people want to become is? A social media influencer. Number one. Number one. Now, I'm not... Big, super big on social media, but from what I can tell, being quiet is not how you become that. Right? It's all about getting something you say, something you do, something you film, something you plastered all over the place. That's how you become that. And that's what I want to be, a social media influencer. Influencer. You know what I find largely within social media? It has its pluses too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not just beating up on it. We use it to, for, many, for a few different things. Well, you know what I find it to be is a lot of times it's just kind of a pool of a whole bunch of people wanting to be an influencer when they haven't even learned yet. If you've got a subject you want to influence people on, go learn about that subject first. But you know, that's what he's, he's telling us. He says, look, if you're going to live out this worthwhile life before God, find some quiet in your life. I often wonder, you know, a lot of the things that, were, that shaped the way that I, the way that I am, the person that I am today, have been found in quietness. There are things that have been discovered in quiet times before God in prayer or in His Word or, or just thinking. And that's one of my biggest concerns about our next generation growing up is you have all this information at, your t- at the tip of your fingers, but when do you just think? We need that quietness. We need that quietness to live out the life that God would have us to live out. We need to not inject drama. Live quietly. But then not only that, he tells them, mind your own business. That in itself will help cut down on some of the drama. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. I've found that in my own life that there's times where somebody will be talking, saying something, or maybe they're doing something, and I think, well, I would do it this way or whatever. And I've found that there's times where I'm just about to interject something in there and I think, you know what? It's not my business. I just leave it alone. Obviously, if it was something that would harm them, I would make it my business to try to warn them of it or something like that. But, but you know what? The fact of the matter is is everybody doesn't need to do or see everything just exactly the way, the way that I do. And sometimes some, some things are just aren't, aren't any of my business. And I need to mind my own affairs. You know, in the, in the Bible, back in the book of Proverbs, it, it talks about how you respond to a, f- a fool. And it has two verses very closely together. And it says, Don't respond to a fool, lest you be like him. And then it says, respond to a fool, lest he becomes wise in his own eyes. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, which do you do? And the point is, you have to kind of evaluate the situation. Sometimes if you correct somebody that's saying something foolish or doing something foolish, it'll make a real good impact. I watched a video just the other day of, of some guy that had two younger people that were just starting to fight it out in the middle of the street, and he stepped up and said, what are you doing? You're fighting this person mainly because the crowd kind of got you to, and look at them. They're just laughing and filming you. You really want to bash one another up just to please them? They don't care about you. And you know what? In the end, the two men walked off, shook hands, and the little caption afterwards said a couple years later, they're still, they get together on a weekly basis and do things together, and they're best of friends to this day. I thought, well, there's a guy that stepped into a group of fools and made a difference. And wisdom prevailed. Well, you know what? There's also times where you step into that same thing, you're just going to be one more fool in the bunch. And you know what? It's just, it's just a matter of being able to wade through those things. When can I be helpful and constructive in somebody's life and when am I just one more voice adding to the confusion? We need to mind our own affairs. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So this is the 2 Thessalonians, so the next letter that he's going to write to them. So obviously the, the things that he tells them here, when he tells them to live that quiet life, not, not exercise drama, when he tells them to mind their own business, apparently not all of them took that to heart. And a few of them started prying into other people's business. Which happens a lot when you get idle. But not all of them took it to heart. And he needed to write them and correct them more strongly. So some of you are not busy at work, but busy bodies. You need to flip that around and get it going the other direction. In fact, they would have avoided this embarrassment if they would have taken the rest of the instruction found in 1 Thessalonians here because the very next point that he makes in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4 is work hard. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, it says, And to work with your hands. To work with your hands. Now, I don't think the actually the with your hands part is a substantial part because you know, our, our culture is quite a bit different. There's a lot of things that people do that isn't so much with their hands these days. But well, you know what? There's still, kind of a, there's still kind of a respect for working with your hands. What is the idea of working with your hands when you hear that phrase? What does it communicate? It means that somebody is diligent. It means that they're willing to work hard. They're willing to roll up their sleeves and get down to business. That's kind of what it insinuates. I remember when we first moved here. we first moved here, the park that just got tore down last week was just about to go up. And I was in the church one day studying and stuff and I walked out by the front doors and looked out and Gary and Keith were out there marking holes for posts for where they were going to put the playground on the park. And I walked over there and asked if they could use any help because it's kind of right down the line of what I've done laying out foundations and things like that in construction and so I began to help them and I remember somebody pulled up alongside the curb and kind of looked over like, what's the pastor doing out there? But you know what? Shortly after that, there wasn't that kind of look anymore. Why? I think it was because I've moved to a logging community and and when I actually had somebody when I first moved here that said, so what do you do all day anyway? And now I was doing things all day, and I explained to them some of the things that I was doing and stuff, and they're like, okay, I'm just curious. I just never knew what you guys would do all day. But, you know, I found that after about a year and a half, just kind of focusing on getting to know people and stuff like that, and I started taking on jobs in construction, working on people's homes and stuff. Then all of a sudden there was a little more of a, uh, i don 't know it 's a touching point i don 't know if it 's a respect or if it 's just a, a connection or, or what exactly happens there, but it actually was a big boost to to my influence or ministry I think in the community It was helpful why because i was uh, I was some, seen as somebody that could work with his hands, which means uh, you will roll up your sleeves and and, and work hard you 'll be diligent and so that 's what he 's communicating here is that, look we need to we need to work hard we should be hard working people students you 're a Christian you should be a good student now I, That doesn't mean maybe that you're going to be the straight A or the top of the class and everything, Um, because some of that is more on what you're kind of geared toward. But you know what? You ought to be a hard worker. You ought to be somebody that's getting their homework done, accomplishing those things. At work, you should be somebody that the bosses like to rely on and know that they can rely on, because you're dependable. Because they know that you're going to do your best to get the task done. You know, how we work is an important aspect of our faith. We're told to work as unto the Lord and not to men. So in other words, you don't work by how much you think your boss deserves. I remember I worked with a guy like that one time. I was working. I like to work hard. And uh, and I was working with, with him. And we had a discussion about it because he was slower. And he said, you know what? They don't pay me enough to work that hard. And I thought, and they're not going to either. And and it wasn't very long. He'd been there for a few years. I was pretty new. It wasn't very long before I passed him up. In fact, my boss, he called me in his office and he says, I'm giving you a raise, but you can't tell anybody. I said, why? He mentioned this one guy. He says, this puts you above him and and it's going to come unglued around here if uh, he finds out that you're making more than he is now. But frankly, he isn't worth it. We're to be those hardworking people, whether it's something that actually takes your hands or not. We need to be that kind of a hardworking people. The Thessalonian church is going to have a problem with that. When you get to Second Thessalonians, you're going to find in chapter 3 and verses 6-12, through 12, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now, these guys had the best of motives for quitting their jobs. They were expecting Christ to come at any moment. And so, why waste your time working when you could just be fellowshipping and reading the Bible and praying and being ready for Christ to return. That's kind of how they are looking at it. That's the situation that was going on. And Paul says, you guys are idle and that's not what you learned from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You know what? There are times in life and there are situations and circumstances in life when people are... Um, incapacitated from being able to do that. And there needs to be programs in place for that kind of a thing. But you know what? I remember remember talking to my son when he worked at a gas station and he said, you know what the predominance of, of food stamps and stuff like that coming in and being spent at the gas station are? He says they're about 26 or so year old healthy young men. Now I would think that probably people that needed it a little more probably spent more time maybe in the grocery stores. The gas station is not the only place to survey that. But you know what I think? Why is any 26-year-old healthy young man getting any help for anything? Get out there and get to work. Get out there and be a benefit to society. Sometimes we get this idea that some things are spiritual and other things are worldly. That is not the case as far as what kinds of tasks. Every part of your life is a spiritual part of your life. You know, Paul would write to Timothy and dealing in this part with where the, how they deal with the widows. And it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He said, If you don't take care of your family, then I don't want to hear about your faith. You have denied it. You are worse than an unbeliever. Part of godliness is is our work ethic. Are we hard working, honest, dependable people? The first ministry that I went to out of college, there was a young man that had recently come to Christ. That was super excited about what God had done in his life, saving him. And he hung out at the church a lot. Just hang around, want to talk about the Lord. He spent a lot of time, quite a bit of time in prayer, reading his Bible, and then just basically spent most of his days and nights bouncing around from friends to friends' house who had come to, who also knew Christ, and just fellowshipping with other believers and stuff. And I remember I, as I'm getting to know him better, I was asking him, I said, well, where do you work? Oh, I don't, I don't have a job right now. I don't, He's about mid-twenties, living at home with his mom. She's kind of struggling financially. And here's this guy spending so much time in at the church and just bouncing around from house to house talking to people. And I remember sitting down with him and saying, you know what, it's great that you're praying a lot. It's great that you're fellowshipping a lot. You're in the Bible a lot. I said, but you know what, that's not all the parts of your life. You need to work. You need to be handling your responsibilities, and you have some. And it's time to get to work. And lastly, notice is that we would be independent because verse 12 says that we're hardworking so that you may walk properly before outsiders. I think that actually refers to all these character traits or characteristics. And be dependent on no one. Notice that this is a very interesting that this independence flows from the hard work. Did you notice that? I remember as a teenager, as a young person, getting up to where I thought, you know what, my life is my life. And so I'm independent. My idea of independence at that time was that I can do what I want, not have to listen to my mom and dad. For some reason, my independence didn't mean that I couldn't eat at their table. For some reason, my independence didn't mean that I couldn't drive their cars. But my independence was more limited to where I went with their cars and when I decided to show up and eat and those, those kinds of things. That, that was my independence. But notice, you know what makes you independent? Hard work. That's what makes you independent. You gain independence when you can take care of yourself and you're not relying on other people to provide those things for you. That's what makes you independent. It's not taking advantage of the privileges that make you independent. It's taking responsibility for the responsibilities that makes you independent. And you know what? That's what God would have us to be. He tells us that we need to work hard so we're not dependent on anybody. The Apostle Paul gave his own example. As he said, we wanted to provide you an example so that you would know how to live out your life in a godly way, which is going to require some of these things. You're going to avoid the drama in your life. You're going to mind, mind your own business. <clears throat> You're going to live within this realm of peace. You're going to work hard. you achieve this independence. So as we live out our life before God, what is that worthwhile walk? What is it going to look like? Well, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it's going to look like holiness. It's going to look like we're separated from sin and sanctified unto God, drawn, set apart unto God. It's going to look like love, an anointed love that God teaches us from within. It's a love that's growing. And that worthy walk is going to include a level of peace, a peace that is seen in a quiet life as we avoid the drama, a peace that is seen in minding our own business, in working hard, diligent, and thus being independent in our resources.